Good morning to all of you. Greetings in the name of Jesus. It's very good to be here. Uh, it's been a number of years since we have been here to visit. I believe we came here in the beginning of 2012, right after Brother Gerald died. We weren't able to make it for the funeral. We were on our way back from Poland, moving back from Poland, when we found out that uh, Gerald was killed in an accident. And so we weren't able to make it for the funeral, but we did come shortly after for some other things related to our time in Poland and came down here to, to see those that we knew and to try to encourage where we could. So it, it's a lot of memories that flash through one's mind. You know, we were here for five years and maybe that doesn't sound like a very long time, but it was a very uh, impactful time in our lives, and we have, we have very fond memories of, of living here with the ones that were here then, and there's a lot of new faces here, and as Brother David said, you don't know me, and I don't know you, but uh, we do serve the same God, and I'm happy to be here to share with you today, and I trust what I have to share will be a blessing. Uh, for you, and I do need to get started on that without too much more preliminary because I go over time and I don't think I'll be done by noon. I, I'll try, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> At home, I, I spent some time giving some messages about, the, about Joseph. If you take the time to look in Genesis, you'll find a number of statements that were made there either by Joseph or about Joseph by someone else. And so I'm going to give you one of those messages this morning it's one of a set of about five, but I think it stands alone by itself without too much trouble. So breaking into Joseph's story, he is in Egypt. Uh, he is in charge of what's going on there in Egypt. They're in the midst of a famine. Joseph's family needs some food. And so Joseph's dad tells his brothers, go to Egypt and get some food for us. Well, they arrive there, and as you know the story, Joseph recognized them. They did not recognize him. And he immediately accused them of being spies. He said, you've come to spy out the land. They said, no, no, we're not here. We just need food. We're hungry. Somehow in the conversation, he finds out, of course, he knew it already, but he got them to tell him that he had a younger brother, or that they had a younger brother. And he made what to seem to his brothers as a very unreasonable demand. He said, you need to bring your brother here. Well, the brothers knew the situation. They remembered what had happened to Joseph. And they knew how Benjamin was very uh, precious to their father. After this demand, if I have it right, he put them all in prison. He put them in prison for three days. He got them back out. He gave them food and put money back, put their money in the bags. They didn't know it, and he sent them on. But before he did that, he bound up Simeon right in front of them and put him back in prison, and he sent the rest home. They got home, they found the money in their bags, and they didn't know what to do. Their dad said, well, the next time you go, you can take it back. And they said, well, we have to take Benjamin. Well, as time moved along there, they did run low on food, and I don't know if Israel or Jacob forgot about it, but he said, you know, go get more food. And the boys said, you know, we have to take Benjamin. So you can read in there how, 
Israel lamented what had to be done. But finally he said, well, take Benjamin. Go get some food. We need some food. And so they went back with Benjamin. Of course, Joseph saw them come. He knew who they were. They still didn't know who he was. And he prepared a banquet for them. He put them in order of age. And the brothers were quite amazed that he knew their ages without them telling him. And again, he gave them food, gave them lots of food, put the money back in their sacks again. And this time he told his servant, as you know the story, put my cup in one of the sacks. In fact, put it in Benjamin's sack and send them home. So that's what happened. He sent his servant out after them and he said, hey, what are you guys doing? You took my master's cup. They said, no, we didn't. We for sure didn't. And he said, yes, you did. It's not there anymore. And he said, whoever's sack I find it in, he's going to have to go back. He's going to have to go back to Egypt and be my master's servant. Well, you know the story. They found it in Benjamin's bag. And the brothers, knowing what was going on here and knowing how it would affect their father, and they just turned all of their animals around and they all went back. They went back to talk to this man who was making all of these unreasonable demands. And it says in the Bible that Judah explained the situation to Joseph and how Benjamin was so much a favorite of his father's. He explained to Joseph how one of their brothers had disappeared. Something had happened. I don't remember. I don't remember the details. But he explained all of that. Of course, the ironic thing is he's talking to Joseph, who knew all of this already. Finally, at the end of that discourse, Judah says, "You know, you let Benjamin go home, and I'll stay here." Well, Joseph, by this point, was overwhelmed and he couldn't hardly contain himself anymore and I'd like to read to you what happened after this comment by Judah in Genesis chapter 45 I'd like to read the first seven verses there and from this will be the title I'll take the title of my message this morning Genesis chapter 45, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he, and he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I'm Joseph, doth my father. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. 
For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and there are yet five years, and there are yet five years, and there are five years, in which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you of posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph, a preserver of life, is the title of the message. God did send me before you to preserve life. You know, you look at this story, Joseph was in a position where he could do that. He could preserve the lives of his, the physical lives of his biological family without any difficulty. They were two years, as it says in this short passage, into this seven-year famine, and he had everything he needed to provide them with everything they needed to survive the next five years without any difficulty. And the Bible tells us that he willingly did that. He willingly did what he could and effectively provided for the physical lives of his family, those that he really cared for. A beautiful picture of a young man who had every reason to tell his brothers something like this. You are getting what you deserve. You mistreated me and you caused me to end up in Egypt all by myself as a slave, separated from my family. Now look, you're hungry and I have everything I need. You can just go and solve this problem on your own. I'm not interested in helping you out. You know, he had every right and every reason to say that, but he did not. Instead, he said, God did send me before you to preserve life. And because of that belief and because of that realization, Joseph stepped into the gap right at this point in this story and became the preserver of life for his family. The question for you and me this morning that I want you to consider is quite simple. Are you and am I preservers of life or are we destroyers of life? Do you have any idea if God has called you to step into some gap and preserve life? Does your life encourage life in others, or does it encourage death? Does it encourage life in your own personal journey, or does it encourage death? I'd like to take a few minutes here for the rest of the time to speak to you a little bit about how I believe you need to be actively involved in preserving life in your own personal journey, so that you then have something to offer to others to help them preserve their lives in their spiritual journey. Because if you forget everything else of what I have to say this morning, please understand, if you aren't preserving your own spiritual journey, your life in your own spiritual journey, you have absolutely nothing to give to anybody else. And so I'm going to focus on that first for a little bit, and then we're going to try and wrap this up with some illustrations of how we as people can be active in preserving the life, the lives of those around us. I'm going to tell a few stories to illustrate that once we get to that point. And I will say that some of these stories, they're personal, not all of them, and some of them will be a little difficult, I fear, for me to give to you, but I'll do the best that I can. So let's look at it first from this personal perspective. What should you and I do personally to preserve our own lives from destruction? We're talking about preserver of life. You know, you look at Joseph, I don't know what he did. The, the, the story of his life and his own personal journey is quite, it's quite limited. But he came through time and time again as a young man who apparently was active in working at nurturing a relationship with God. 
that stood him in good stead when he needed it. But there's little evidence of what he did. What did he do when he was in prison? Did he read his Bible every day? Did he have a Bible? Did he read? I don't, what did, I don't know. But somewhere along the line, he stepped forward and didn't give in to temptation when Potiphar's wife tempted him. He, he didn't give in to bitterness when the butler forgot about him. He, was a, he, was, he is a prime example of a young man who was in touch with his, with his Lord somehow. And that's what we need to be. How do we preserve our lives from destruction? You know, you can think of it from a physical perspective. And the world does that quite often. You can eat well, don't eat too much, eat healthy food, eat regularly. You can drink lots of water, get, good, get a good amount of sleep, be sure you exercise every day. All of this helps preserve your physical life. You all know that, and I know it as well. But what is 1 Timothy 4? Verses 7 and 8 say, it says it like this, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. You know, it seems here in Paul's writing to Timothy that preserving life is more than just a good diet and a good exercise program. Here, Paul says, godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, that's the physical life, and that which is to come, that's the spiritual life. Godliness, my friends, should be your goal. Godliness is what you need to preserve life. This idea of preserving life is completely wrapped up in this principle of being godly. Can you and I preserve life without being godly? Physically speaking, you can do it, and you can do it well. But can you preserve life spiritually without being godly? The answer is a resounding no. You cannot do it. Which is more important this morning in the eternal picture? That you preserve physical life and live to be a ripe old age of whatever you want to put into the blank there? Or preserving life spiritually? So you have the reality of eternity with God, which is the most important. You know, a few things that I think you need to think about in preserving spiritual life in your own journey. These might not be new things, but I think they're things that we need to remember. I'll go over them anyway because they are important. Ephesians 6.18 says it like this. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Praying always. This is what you need in your own personal journey. This spirit and attitude and, and, and lifestyle of prayer. However you want to determine, I'm sorry, however you want to define the praying always. Is that 24 sevens? Is that just when you're awake? Is that when you're sleeping? I'm not going to get into a discussion about what it means to pray always, but prayer is, is so vitally important for you to maintain the, 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 the spiritual life in your own personal journey. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul spends a lot of verses here in Ephesians 6 describing to us the uh, armor that we are to wear. What's that for? That's to preserve our own spiritual lives, is it not? And then he turns right around and says, pray. Pray always. 
it seems like it's kind of like Paul, where he just told us how to, how to preserve spiritual life. Why didn't you put that into the armor somehow? I don't know, but he puts it in afterward. Making us realize that prayer is vitally important. Prayer sometimes can be frustrating because, you know, it maybe doesn't generate the results that we want. We don't get the answers as quickly as we wish we would. And yet it is prayer that is vital to maintaining your own spiritual life. So you have, therefore, something to give to someone else. Psalm 55 says, evening, morning, and noon will I pray. Again, a picture of prayer all the time. James 5 talks about how the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer. How much do you pray? How important is that to you this morning? I don't pray as much as I should. I know I don't. I do pray. But I've heard and I've always admired those that put lots of time into their prayer life. And they testify of that. And it always impresses me. Why? Because 1 Peter says it like this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The end of all things. You know, we don't know when the world is going to end, when Jesus is going to return. But it is coming. And we want to make sure our spiritual lives are as they should be. Prayer. Another, another part of preserving our own our own spiritual lives is meditation. Joshua 1.8, where Joshua said, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and so on. Meditate day and night. Again, it's a, a picture of an always, a continual meditating on God's word, reading it, studying it, discussing it, making it vital, seeing how it fits. In every area of our lives. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4. I can find it here. Verses 15 and 16. Meditate upon. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. That thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Meditate. Take heed. Why? Because you'll save yourself. And then you'll save others as well. How is your spiritual journey this morning? Are you even able to be a preserver of life to those around you? I'd like to go to Philippians chapter 4. And just walk you through a few things here that, that Paul gives in the first nine verses. As, I, as what I believe, it's, it's a very concise and a very complete overview of what you and I need this morning to preserve life personally. So we'll go down through here. I won't talk about each of these very, very much, but I want to share them and you can consider them maybe in your own personal study. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. What do we need to preserve life personally? Stand fast in the Lord. 
no, not a, not a stubborn, arrogant, I have it right and nobody can change my mind type of an approach, but a solid commitment, being convinced that what we have, what we understand is what we need to be true to. Stand fast in the Lord. How many of you are actively standing fast in the Lord? Or how many of you are waffling back and forth? Maybe you have observed it in others and it burdens you because you see others, they're not very stable. Paul says, stand fast in the Lord. This will preserve your life, your spiritual life personally. Verse 2, I beseech you... Eurodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Unity. Unity with other believers. You want to have your spiritual life preserved personally. You need to find yourself a fellowship where you can be accountable with and unified with. And I'm not saying that that's not your case here. But I know how churches work. I've been a member of a church for a number of years and... There's not always the unity there that you think would be the obvious result of men and women who are committed to serving the Lord. It seems like sometimes there's more, more tension than there is unity. But for each of you to be able to preserve a spiritual life, your spiritual life the way God wants it to be, you need to, you need to experience and encourage Unity with other believers. Verse 3, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. You know, help those women which labored with me. Help them, encourage them. Spiritual life preservation is, one of the keys to that is encouraging other believers. No, it's not all about me. It's not all about what I need. It's not all about my journey. But it's about me reaching out and encouraging others and allowing them to encourage me. Again, it's that brotherhood, that unity. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. I don't know how well you do that. But if you want to be spiritually strong, you'd better do that. If you're not a person who is able to rejoice, that is not someone who is actively preserving their own spiritual lives. Again, you want to be able to preserve your own spiritual life so that you can preserve the lives of others. You have something to give them. You have something to throw to them when they need help. And I'm not here as a perfect example, by no means, of rejoicing in the Lord. We've been through a number of hard things over the last couple of years in the life of our family, and I, I didn't do well at rejoicing in many of those situations, and even to this day. I don't look back with, on a lot of those memories, whether it was kidnapping in Haiti or the death of our grandson or whatever it was. I don't find much joy in it. I just don't. And I don't know. I guess I should. I don't know what to say, but I don't. And I don't have a whole lot to offer sometimes to people who are struggling to be joyful because of life's circumstances, which bothers me. But the Bible says rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Verse 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Exercise moderation in your life. Not excessive in this area or that area, but moderation, the Bible says. Let, it, let people know that you're a man who's disciplined, a woman who's disciplined, and has your life under control. No, not because they can say, wow, you're a disciplined person, but just because they see a person who is dedicated to 
following this principle. Verse 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto to God. Again, it brings in prayer there, but it adds to that thanksgiving. This is a way of life, because you want to be able to help others. Stay strong and preserve the spiritual life in other people's lives. It says in verse 7 that all of these things lead to peace. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace. How many of you have seen spiritual life preserved by anything other than peace? How many times has strife preserved spiritual lives? Have you been the... the involved in strife and realize that, wow, this strife I'm in just makes me really want to serve God? You know, that's just an odd statement, and you know it is. It's peace that encourages you in your spiritual journey personally, and it preserves that in your life personally as well as encourages it in others. Verses 8 and 9, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. These things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Beautiful summary of what is needed by you and me personally to preserve our own spiritual lives the way God would have us to do. Sometime back, I don't remember when it was, I came across a news video, I believe it was, and it was showing a boat in the water. And this boat was in obvious uh, distress. It wasn't going too well. As I recall, there was a family on this boat, some parents and some children. I don't remember how many. But the boat was in the process of capsizing. It was going over. It wasn't happening fast. It was happening slowly. And you could watch it on this video. And there was a lot of shouting and, and a lot of stress going on in that picture, in that short little video. As I watched it, suddenly in the bottom of the picture, I saw the... The, the prow of another boat. You can just see the front of it coming into the picture. And as I watched, I saw a life preserver hit the water near this boat in trouble. Then another one, and then another one. And these people in the second boat were throwing life preservers to those who were in trouble. Why, did they, why would they do something like that? Why would they have thrown their life preservers out into the water for these folks that were in trouble in the boat that they were, or had been on? Well, it's simple. These people wanted to preserve life. And as I recall, all of the people in that boat in trouble, their lives were preserved. They were rescued by these folks who came onto the scene and saw the need. You know, for them, it was all about preserving for, all of these, for the people in this second boat, it wasn't about preserving their own lives anymore. It was about preserving the lives of this family in trouble. And they did what they could to make that happen. They threw the preservers out there, and those people in trouble grabbed them, and they were pulled onto the other boat, safe. Lives were preserved. 
This morning, how do you relate to those around you when there's trouble? You know, we, we're carnal people sometimes. And I, maybe you guys aren't, maybe you all here aren't as carnal as we are in the West. But too many times we have, we have thoughts like this. Maybe we don't say them, but we have thoughts like this. You know what? We think, well, you know what? I have enough of my own troubles today. I've got enough troubles to deal with. That person in trouble is going to have to figure it out himself. Or maybe we say, you know, we've been through so much and, and life's been so rough and tough and hard that, you know, we say, well, I wish I could help him. I mean, I see that person in my church needs help, but you know what? I just don't have the energy. I'm too tired. They can figure it out themselves. Or maybe we're a bit more judgmental and we say, well, you know, if these people would have just done it differently, if they would have been a little smarter, they wouldn't be where they are now. And we walk away with our nose in the air. Or maybe we say, well, you know, before they ever got into this problem, I told them that they shouldn't do it that way and they didn't listen to me. So I don't really have time to talk to them again. Or we might say, you know, they're just getting what they deserve. You know, the Bible talks about sowing and reaping. Had they thought about that before they did what they did, they wouldn't have done what they did. What else can they expect? Or maybe at some point in this journey with this, these dear people beside us who are struggling, you know, we reached out to them a few times and, and they didn't want our help. And so we're sitting there thinking, well, I've tried already. I tried two, three, four times and they just pushed me back every time. Or maybe we're just, you know, I don't know if we'd say realistic or fatalistic, but we just say, um, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I don't know how to help them. But I think that person there knows how to help them. They can help them. I'll go on my merry way and do something else. You know, any of these approaches are approaches that maybe all of you have thought about from time to time. And I'm not here to condemn you for thinking about them, but I'm here to help you understand that any of those approaches that I just gave you do not preserve life. In fact, they destroy it that I have no idea what's going on in this church. I have no idea what the needs are. I have no idea if there's tension. I, have not, I don't know anything about you folks here. So if you feel like I'm talking about you, it's not me talking about you. It's somebody else talking about you. But I'm here this morning to, to urge you to be active in preserving the life of those around, lives of those around you. You know, maybe you don't have church troubles here in the East, but... There's church troubles all over the place, in the West, in the Midwest, in the North, in the South. Why? It seems like people are so, act, so much more actively involved in destroying than more, more involved and more interested in destroying than preserving. Joseph told his brothers, he said, just don't get stressed about what happened. God put me in this spot to preserve your life. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm here to tell you that God maybe has put you in the spot you're in right now to preserve someone's life. There was a young man who I knew some years back. We'll call him James. When he was growing up, I talked to him maybe about 10 years ago. I don't remember, 8, 10 years ago. And he shared with me his testimony. And in that testimony, he said, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, I struggled. 
I wasn't sure I wanted to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't know if I wanted to follow him. And I did some things that I shouldn't do. I shouldn't have done, I'm sorry. But he said, there was another man in the community where I lived. And we'll call him Charles. He said, Charles cared about me. He said, Charles would come and talk to me. And he would say, you know, James, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go that direction. Do you know where you're going? Do you see where you're headed? And he said, I didn't always listen to Charles very well. But he said, Charles didn't give up. He kept coming back. He said, and this happened when he was a teenager. Struggling to know, struggling to decide who he should, whether he should follow God or not. And in that conversation, some eight years ago, eight, ten years ago, James said, he said, I'm a follower of Jesus today. Because of Charles's quiet and persistent pursuit and interest. James is 40 plus today. He's got a family. As far as I know, he's very committed to serving the Lord. You know, and I think we all would want to say that we want to be a preserver of life as Joseph was. You look at what Joseph did. You look at how he responded to his brothers. And we're impressed. And we just say, that's an ideal that I want to have in my life. That's how I want to be in every situation that I find myself in. And I hope you can be. But just to put a little bit of, of, of meat on these bones, so to speak, I'd like to, I'd like to give you a few illustrations of life preservers that you can throw to that person floundering in the water to save their life. You can throw them to throw the life preserver to them for the purpose of preserving their spiritual life so that they can continue. I have a few verses, just, just a few. I think I'll take the time to read them as I give these illustrations. 1 John 3, verse 17. It's kind of coming at it through the back door, but, but the, it says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Just a simple statement there saying, look, if you see somebody has a need and you don't do anything, you're a hypocrite. You don't love God like you say you do. Life preserver, number one, is called the sharing life preserver. Giving when there is a need. And this giving can be in many ways, many different shapes and forms. But to illustrate my point, it was about, I don't know, 28 years ago? Yeah, something like that. It was when our son Austin was just a baby. That I was trying to make something in a wood shop for my wife for Christmas. And I had the misfortune, you know, 28 years ago, we're talking, I don't know what, when that would be, early 90s. We're talking... Uh, 
yeah, I've lost my thought there. But I, I was trying to make something for, for, for my wife. And uh, working in the wood shop, and I won't go into the story, it's not that important, but I had the misfortune of getting my hand tangled with a table saw. And that's never a pleasant experience, and it damaged my hand pretty badly. And I found myself in the hospital, and a few days later, had surgery on my hand to try and fix it up. It was my left hand, and obviously it was all bandaged up. At that point, I was working for my father-in-law. I, was, I, was, I can't remember if I was working in the office or if they offered me a job in the office so I could work with one hand. I don't remember. But I do know I was sitting in there one day after I'd had the surgery and hand bandaged, and I'd gotten the bill. Now, 28 years ago, you know, the bills were a little smaller, but then money was not as plentiful either. And so I'd gotten this bill, and it was kind of depressing. You know, we'd just been married, we hadn't been married too long, and I didn't have any money to cover this. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do to pay the bill. But I remember ever so well sitting there at my desk, and to my right was the door to the office, and that door busted open one, one afternoon, and in walked a friend. He didn't say anything. But he walked around the, the counter there and came over to my desk. And he, he put his hand out and he opened it and bills dropped on my desk. Not bills to pay, but dollar bills. <laughs> and then he said, we've had a lot of Bills, hospital bills, which is true, in our family and many people have helped us. And with that, he turned around and walked out the door. You know, that was a life preserver. I don't remember how much he gave. I don't know how much it dented the bill. I, I don't remember that detail. But I do remember the feeling of somebody caring enough to throw a preserver my direction. The sharing life preserver. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The title of or the name of this preserver is the helping life preserver. You see somebody who has fallen, who is struggling, help. Help them. Help them so that they can continue on. You say, well, how do I help them? Well, that's what the Spirit of God will help you to understand. You first of all have to be willing to help them. The story is told of a young man by the name of Brett. He lived in a community. He was a, he was a normal young man. Very, he, was, he was a follower of Jesus, very much wanted to serve the Lord, but he struggled with things that young men struggle with. He had struggles with purity and, and trying to keep his life in order and in that area, and he wasn't sure what to do. He didn't know where to, he could hardly find his way. It was pretty rough. And one day... 
an older gentleman who we will call Dylan realized that this that 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 Brett was struggling. And Dylan came alongside Brett and he said, "Look, I see you're struggling. Can I help you?" Well, Brett accepted Dylan's help. And he allowed Dylan to come alongside him and walk with him for quite a few months. Brett grabbed that life preserver and together they were successful. Today, Brett is a man of God will testify to you that he has overcome in those areas of his life. Why? Somebody saw his struggle and threw him a preserver. Somebody helped him. Verse 2 in Galatians 6 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Carrying the burdens of others. We call this the bearing life preserver. It's already been referred to that, I'm sorry, it's three minutes after 12. Just sit tight, I'll be done. I haven't, don't get a chance to preach here very often, and so I take advantage of it. No, that's not the point. Um, it's already been referred to that we were in Poland for a number of years. And towards the, I don't know, maybe in about the year seven or eight, we decided to build a house in Poland. And we built that house, went through all of the steps that needed to be done to get approvals. And I don't remember nearly all of those details anymore. But I do know we got, we got all the approval and everything done. And we got it built. And we're trying to get the final approval. Ran into all kinds of headaches. And by that time... We were beginning, we had already planned to come back to America come and leave Poland. And we wanted to get the final approval before we left Poland. And I, could, I remember just, it just was getting worse and worse. And speaking Polish, you know, at that point we could do it fairly well, but still with some of those discussions, it was almost impossible sometimes to know what these inspectors wanted. And uh, they weren't always, they were very rarely helpful. And I remember, you know, we were getting closer and closer to leaving, and we were not getting this problem solved. It was just getting worse and worse. And I didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to find our way. And it was, it was very, very discouraging. And I so well remember a friend of mine there in Poland, a Polish man, his name was Peter, we learned to know him and his family, very good fellow, very much wanted to help. And somehow he, he realized, I don't know if I told him or if he just realized, you know, we had a problem on our hands. And he came alongside me and he said, he said, I'll help you. He could speak English and he could speak Polish. He said, I'll go with you to the offices in town and I'll help you talk to the officials there. You don't need to do this by yourself. And suddenly, the burden of house approval became lighter and life was preserved and we were able to go on. 
Because someone says, I see the struggle. And here is a way that I will help you. Grab onto it. And I did. I grabbed on and held tight as he helped us find our way through. And then there's the time life preserver. Share your time. A friend of mine, I don't know him real well, his name is Anthony, was telling me about his neighbor where he moved some years back and he moved into that area. His neighbor was an atheist and he being a friendly fella, not the atheist, but the guy who moved, the friend, Anthony, uh, he wanted to be kind to this man so he would go over to his neighbor and talk to him and be interested in him. He would take time. He would pray for him. This, this atheist man realized that he is, Anthony is a Christian, and he told Anthony, he said, you know what, I don't want to hear anything about your God. Just be quiet. I don't believe it. Well, Anthony, you know, tried to be respectful of that, but he continued to go visit his neighbor. I don't know how regularly, but it went on and on. This was several years ago when he first met him. I don't remember how many years ago. But Anthony told me, just a couple months ago, he said, you know what? He said, things have changed. He says, now when I go over to talk to my neighbor, my neighbor says, thanks for taking the time to come over and talk to me. You know, I believe there is a God now. Then he asked Anthony to pray for him. Why? Because Anthony took time. He took that preserver with time written on it and threw it to his neighbor over and over and over again. It was pushed away. It was pushed away many times, but eventually the neighbor took a hold of it. And there's results. Because somebody wanted to preserve life. The last one that I'd like to talk about, this will be the most difficult story to tell, but I'll tell it anyway because it is a meaningful story for me personally. And then I think we'll be done with just a few concluding comments. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25 says it like this in verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. The name of this life preserver is the kind word. Life preserver. Kind words. Words are powerful. They can either preserve life or they can destroy life. And you all know what I'm talking about. You've either been on the end of having your life preserved because of a kind word or you've been on the end of having your life destroyed because of a, an aggressive and unkind word. To illustrate this, my mind goes back to a day when uh, we as a family were trying to bring all of the different elements of life together in some kind of a meaningful way. It was November 20, 2000, 2021. Now that date doesn't mean a whole lot to most of you except if you, if you think back, that was the time, that was during the time when the group in Haiti was kidnapped. And as David said, our son Austin was in that group. And he had gone down to Haiti in October and been kidnapped with the rest of them 
And when he left, he had a sister, or he has a sister, but um, who was planning to get married. And her wedding date was November 20, 2021. Of course, the story of the kidnapping is, is, is full of all kinds of details that I won't, I won't go into. But it obviously became fairly obvious to us that, you know, Austin's gonna, not going to be at this wedding. He left to go to Haiti, telling all of us that you know, he's going to come back for the wedding. And so we were trying to figure out how to deal with the joy of a daughter getting married and the pain of a son who was missing. And that was a difficult journey. It was a difficult journey to walk. And uh, I don't know how well we did. But I do remember very clearly that morning went into my office and I guess I checked my emails. I don't remember. I don't remember what led me in there. But I did check my emails. And there was an email in my inbox that morning from a man that I barely even knew. He also works for Christian Aid Ministries. And I am not sure if I'd ever met him. I, I don't remember. I probably did meet him a time or two, but I rarely had talked to him. Some of you probably know Brother Ryan Martin from Canada. But he had decided to, to send me an email. And of course, as I mentioned, this was in the midst of the kidnapping, and yes, that kidnapping had drained all the energy. And practically all of the life out of me and my wife and our family. And in the midst of that situation, we had a daughter. Getting married. A daughter who A daughter who wanted her dad to and her mom to rejoice. To rejoice with her. 
And we hardly could. But in the midst of all of those emotions, Orion wrote this email. Kind words, they were. He said, Dear Brother John, I prayed for you and your family this morning. As you experience a bittersweet day, celebrating the marriage of your daughter, while grieving the absence of your son. May God be very near to you as you sort through your emotions today. And those words gave life. This morning, I go back to the question, are you a preserver of life or a destroyer of life? You know, we all want to be life preservers. I'm sure there's other preservers that God would have you and me throw to other people. And you know, people might ask, why would you do that? It's because in all of our hearts, we, do, we want to preserve life and not initiate death. We don't want to break the bruised reed completely or quench the smoking fox completely. We desire to provide healing where bruising has occurred and to fan and to flame the fire that is about to go out. Joseph. He didn't know that in all of those confusing circumstances that God allowed into his life, that God was then going to give him the opportunity to preserve the life of his family. And you and I may not often know where a particular individual is in their spiritual journey. You may not realize until years down the road how an action, how your action was what preserved life. When the energy... When the energy to continue was almost worn out and lost. So in light of this reality, I just beg of you, don't hold off in throwing a life preserver until you see a person about to perish spiritually. Rather, try to be so in tune with God's spirit that when he moves you to throw a life preserver to another person, you throw it, even if you don't quite know why. You know, some of the stories I gave, the reason to throw them was very real, but, or clear, but sometimes it's not. And then if someone comes to us, comes to you and says, why did you do that? Why did you offer that action of preservation when all seemed to be well and good? The answer from you can be very simple. Because I wanted to preserve life. So this morning, as I encouraged you at the beginning, take the time to do what you need to do in your own spiritual journey so that you are alive and healthy and strong. And then look around you and look for those to whom you can throw life preservers to so that they can continue, so that they can be faithful as well as they serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening, and I'm sorry for the going over time.